0: Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. One of the advantages of serving clients across multiple geographies is that Dynamic can see firsthand how the differences in health systems play out in terms of spend, outcomes and innovation. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Vynamic London's Oliver White and Vynamic Boston's Sherry Robbins to discuss key differences between the health systems in each country and what they can learn from one another as they move healthcare delivery out of the hospital and into the community setting. It's no secret that the U.S. and U.K. have vastly different healthcare delivery and financing systems. In one sense, they represent two extremes of the delivery spectrum. The United States has the largest private sector system globally, while the U.K. has the largest publicly funded system. Sherry, could you give our listeners a high-level overview of some of the key characteristics of U.S. healthcare delivery as it compares to the U.K.?
1: Absolutely. We can start by addressing the elephant in the room. The U.S. pays way more than other economically similar nations on healthcare as a percentage of GDP, $4 trillion to be exact. Yet in return, our patients have worse population health outcomes. With all that money going into the system, it's surprising that we don't have the best outcomes across the board. In aggregate, the US typically scores much lower than peer countries like the UK when it comes to key disease areas, access to primary and essential care, and simply affordability. The World Health Organization famously ranked the US healthcare system 37th, tucked between Costa Rica and Slovenia. Not to be a downer, but that's not really what to brag about, is it?
2: Sherry, it's such a good point. I think as healthcare wonks, we see that ranking a lot and remember it. But it's obviously not all bad, right? I think, Sherry, your point around the 20% GDP spend is something we read about and talk about a lot here on the podcast. And the fact that how they connect that spend with outcomes are very relevant. But a lot of that data is drawn from surveys examining how members of the public and primary care physicians experience healthcare in their respective countries. And, and we also know that in the U.S., we have a very fragmented system. I mean, some may even say we have 50 individual healthcare systems within the United States. But remember these large level, macro level statistics do not always represent some of these pockets of excellence that we see across the country. I really believe that it's access and coordination and these elements that are really needing to be prioritized across this country. And and we also know there's some really key focal points, and the key focal points are around a lack of access for the urban and rural areas of the United States. We were just reading a fact from the USDA Economic Research Center that said that almost a thousand rural counties in the U.S., a thousand, that's a lot recorded more deaths than births in the United States. There's incredible population shifts. 20% of the people, there's only 20% of the people that make up 97% of the landmass in rural areas. And what that means is there are sicker and poorer folks in these rural settings. And that means that there are hospitals that are closing and there's less PCPs, there's less dentistry, there's less specialists. And there's also an issue in poverty stricken urban areas as well. When we look globally at the primary care connection and coordination with other subspecialists and specifically behavioral health, the U.S. ranks very low in comparison to other countries and other developed countries that have better outcomes, longer life expectancy, and better qualities of life. So if we're able to focus on some of those key pockets of areas, I think we have an opportunity to look Forward and exceed some of these goals that we've set from a CMS perspective.
0: Right, I think for all of these challenges, I do want to go back to that point that you called out about these pockets of excellence, and I think we're so lucky at Dynamic to work with world-class institutions across our various hubs. You know, organizations um, like Chop or, or Duke Healthcare Innovation, and when you look at rankings around innovation and science and technology in the healthcare space. The US for, for all of its foibles and high cost and fragmentation typically comes out on top in those metrics and often by a pretty large margin when you're looking at things like new therapeutics and medical devices and is often seen as one of the forerunners when it comes to scientific impact in research both in the therapeutic setting but also in the clinical practice setting as well oliver from your perspective what are some of the defining characteristics of the uk health system as it compares to the us
3: so the most obvious place to start is the fact that the uk spends vastly less as a percentage of gdp than the us at only around 9 percent. This equates in US dollars to about 4,000 per capita. This is less than a third of what the US pays per capita. Despite this vastly lower spending on healthcare per person, the UK manages to achieve what some would consider enviable results, scoring high marks on access, health outcomes, and obviously cost. Without doing a disservice to our listeners' knowledge, I say obviously because unlike in the US, the UK has universal healthcare coverage, which comes under the NHS or our National Health Service. This means that all residents of England are automatically entitled to access NHS care and pay, in most cases, nothing for services rendered. So, with good overall health outcomes and lower out-of-pocket costs, what's not to like? In complete transparency, there are some issues, and the NHS does receive lower marks for its responsiveness to its citizens' health care's wants and needs in a number of areas. These areas have been particularly exacerbated following the COVID-19 pandemic. For instance, the number of people now on our elective waiting list numbers over 6 million, a number before never seen. There are also a significant number of people on that waiting list who have now passed over the 104-week wait mark. That's two years for elective care. The NHS is also facing significant challenges on its emergency care pathways, with 12-hour waits in the emergency department reaching all-time highs almost week on week. There have, for a number of years, being complaints that the infrastructure of the NHS is not modern and matching that of comparable economically developed countries. This is particularly true in certain areas of their technology and IT infrastructure. And then finally, having said all of that, as with other healthcare systems, the aging population, the rising healthcare costs across the globe have made balancing the NHS's budget ever more challenging.
1: One thing I wanna follow up on that you mentioned before, Oliver, is around ER wait times. The problem of long wait times is obviously not just a UK specific issue. While average ER wait times can vary widely through the US, the average time to be seen is about an hour. That's three hours less than the UK. Interesting though, patients in the UK report about a 10% greater satisfaction with their ED experience. It's clear across the globe that whatever's been tried in the past around improving ER patient flow and offsetting non-emergent ED visits by using the one of hundreds of urgent care centers that's popped up in the last 10 years, that something else needs to change in the industry to help get patients the care they need when they need it.
0: Thanks Sherry and Oliver for your primer on how these two very different systems compare when it comes to key metrics. I think it's clear that you know both have their pros and their cons, whether you're looking at things like cost or things like freedom of choice, wait times, et cetera. But I can imagine for both of these systems that innovation as it relates to cost containment and customer satisfaction is really at the top of the list when it comes to their healthcare priorities. Oliver, Where do you see the NHS focusing these days when it comes to new models or ideas?
3: One of the most exciting areas that the NHS is putting efforts into innovating in is the movement of care closer to home. Obviously, we can't talk about that movement without talking about the global pandemic that made this shift in focus fundamentally crucial. And I think even with the substantial decrease in COVID cases and as the world begins to move out of the COVID-19 pandemic, the, the lessons learned, the impact and the transformative momentum that has been generated is here to stay. Further, the shape of how healthcare is delivered is beginning to shift from visiting a live clinician in a hospital or someone even coming to visit you at your home to some version of a digital or telehealth appointment. New data indicates that the amount of these telehealth or digital appointments have increased 38 times from their pre-COVID-19 baseline. In some settings, particularly around outpatients, Previously, the NHS was having 98% face-to-face appointments and some areas, as we come out of the pandemic, are as high as 70% being digital. That represents a massive shift in how healthcare is delivered. These digital or telehealth appointments have proven to be a favourable consumer option and also offer much better return on investment and financial efficiency. This leads us to the very interesting question of how we can continue to deflate congested services, particularly on the emergency care pathways, and continue to offer ever more accessible digital and telehealth appointments, both in the US and the UK.
2: Oliver, completely agree. When we think about high cost elements and areas of healthcare, nothing is different actually, when it comes to that. And we think about EDs that we've talked a lot about, but also the maturity of telehealth in both countries has just gone from an evolution to more revolutionary. You know, we've seen in the U.S. telehealth specifically go from pretty simple ways of understanding and memorializing workflow, simple visits with primary care, to building up entire staffing models and organizations around telehealth, to optimizing those those workflows to improve kind of the patient experience, and then even accelerating and elevating to providing 24-7, 365 on-demand services, creating nationwide programs in the U.S., expanding from kind of a direct-to-consumer to to a B2B platform and programming, I could go on and on implementing chronic condition management solutions, taking telehealth, digital health to the next level, and all it can be done many times in the comfort of your own home. So on top of that, in the U.S., the innovation and the money that's being raised is really phenomenal. We're talking $29, $30 billion being raised by U.S. digital healthcare companies just in this space alone, right? Hundreds of mergers and acquisitions and partnerships to try to fix these issues around digital health, to provide interventions for better access for patients in the rural and urban areas. So there's a lot of momentum there that I think could be shared across
3: the two countries in a really smart way. So one of the ways in which the NHS is trying to tackle this is through the introduction of what is now called community crisis response teams. These should now be present in all healthcare systems across the UK and have a two-hour response target to get to people in their own homes to deliver some form of urgent care. The model that this is typically taking is that of healthcare practitioners in an ambulance, but this model includes practitioners that you may not expect to see arrive in an ambulance. Typically, this is some form of nurse practitioner accompanied by an occupational or physical therapist, a mental health worker, or a social worker. Patients that are appropriate for this kind of care are triaged through the ambulance services and an ambulance with one of the crews, as just described, will then be dispatched to the scene. At the moment, this type of care is typically provided to frail patients or patients experiencing some form of mental health crisis or patients with an extended social care need. The response from patients to this service has been incredible. There are a number of case studies that you can find simply by googling community crisis response team that show that there is demand for this service and i think the nhs as a whole is generally looking to expand this the challenge as with most of these in care models is working across organizational boundaries and having the workforce to actually supply this demand i think this is a really interesting area Definitely worth keeping an eye on. And I expect over the next couple of years as the ICSs, which are the UK's health systems mature, we will definitely look to see how these services evolve.
0: Thanks, Oliver. That definitely sounds like a very innovative care delivery model that the NHS is pursuing. Sherry, I'm wondering if particularly in the context of this telehealth revolution and the investment, particularly in figuring out how do we alleviate costs on our emergency departments or volume in our emergency departments here in the States. Do you see something akin to this model being desirable for the US healthcare system?
1: I definitely do, Jen. I actually think it's so exciting the direction that this could go here in the US. I mean, we're seeing a huge emphasis on home health here. CMS home health expenditures are expected to increase over 70% by 2029 from where they were in 2020. Obviously, planned home health is different than the emergent community crisis response model that Oliver's talking about, but the goals are really the same. To keep patients out of the hospital, to deflate the EDs of non-urgent, non-emergent patients so that the clinicians there can focus on those truly requiring higher acuity care, and to increase patient satisfaction in a couple of ways, like through the timeliness of care, being treated within the comfort of your own home, and avoiding potential exposure to other illnesses within the emergency department. I mean, the crisis care model is surely innovative, as having a nurse practitioner on the ambulance from the outset would provide huge benefits, particularly for certain populations. When you think about geriatric patients and the underserved, you know, they may rely on ambulances as their only mode to get the care they need. The model could also benefit the hospitals, though. They could contract their providers to the ambulance companies, for example, to create a joint venture that could be lucrative to their overall business model. Ultimately, it's a new way to deliver urgent care in a market that has never been more focused on health at home.
0: Ryan, as Vynamic's head of the provider sector... What challenges or opportunities do you think that this model could have in the U.S. market?
2: One of the challenges I see is the lack of an instant ROI. You know, there may be an ROI from a individual perspective or an intervention perspective, but it's sometimes hard to measure some of these large new delivery care models quickly. And I think sometimes that's what we look for in healthcare. But as we've talked before, healthcare change happens in a generation. It doesn't happen in a month or even a year sometimes. So so the acknowledgement of understanding that some of these new interventions don't have a quick ROI is something that we'd have to deal with from a challenging perspective. And I think that behavioral health is such an important key to this, right? That's part of social determinants of health. And being able to integrate behavioral health programs into the U.S. health system has traditionally been very difficult to become actionable here in the States. And the proof is in the data, right? Countries that connect primary care to behavioral health or Urgent situations or crisis situations to behavioral health providers and specialists have better outcomes. And so the theory behind this is obvious, but making it actionable and actually making it happen is very difficult. As Oliver mentioned, the NHS has the ability to scale many of its solutions nationally. And that's really important to note that there is a difference between the NHS and the US. As I've already mentioned, that the US is made up of several fragmented healthcare systems. Sometimes that's good, but sometimes that's bad. And when you're thinking about scaling something nationally, it makes it very difficult. Unless you're doing something through CMS or through government programs, it's almost impossible to do so because we're working with different healthcare systems, different commercial health plans. So, speaking of health plans, there's a lot of opportunities here with many of the elements that both Oliver and Sherry have mentioned, right? Because health plans are kind of the first line of defense when it comes to reimbursement and the initiation of new deliveries and continuity of care. There's an opportunity here where health plans can see some of these programs that are being done in the UK and potentially reverse engineer them and bring them across the states, right? We talk a lot, Oliver and I, about all of these similarities between the UK and the US from a provider perspective. We're all trying to clear out the ED, as Sherry mentioned. We're all trying to figure out how to balance inpatient care with outpatient care, with home healthcare, with the digital revolution and the fact that there's a difference the way some patients and their families consume and want delivery of care being provided to them from an analog perspective to digitally focused. So there's an opportunity for us to partner in a better way across the two countries. And if we continue down this path, I think we can mend the differences and find really smart similarities between the two systems and create real value for both the U.S. and the U.K. populations.
0: So well said, Ryan. I think this model is just one example of how the two countries can learn from one another despite, at least on the surface, having very different systems in place. Thank you, Sherry and Oliver for taking the time today to educate our listeners on the key differences and bring this new model to life. For our listeners who are interested in hearing more from Oliver in the future, I'm happy to announce that he will be one of our featured hosts on the forthcoming trending news EU, which will be debuting this June. It's an episode format that will be focused on those news stories that are most impactful to our listeners in the EU and the UK markets. So stay tuned. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.